0: So, if you've got your Bibles on you, you might like to turn to into the Old Testament and uh, Nehemiah, uh, the first chapter. Uh, I just encourage you to go there. If you're not sure where to find it in your Bibles, look at your contents page, and uh, you'll find it staring right at you. And uh, Nehemiah comes after kind of uh, Ezra and uh, those little passages there. But Nehemiah is where we're going to be, and I'm quite excited about this, I really am. Oh, yes, the older ones are going out now, sorry. Uh, so uh, you'll know who you are, and uh, you'll be having your time as well. But um, Nehemiah is a great, great book. And over the next uh, the weeks, apart from next Sunday, but the weeks ahead, we'll be looking at Nehemiah. You might want to read through the book yourself, just to get a bit of familiarity with it. I'd encourage you to do that too. Um, but I believe this particular series is great. It'll shed light on, I believe, where we are as a church, and what we're going for, uh, and also how we can respond to what God is doing among us as a people. And I'm excited about that. And so today, I want to introduce Nehemiah to you, really. Introduce the subject and really looking at the first few verses of the first chapter. And uh, they're going to appear on the screen, but Julian here is going to read through uh, verse 1 through to 4 of this new series. So get ready. Uh, I believe it's going to be a good one. And uh, let's just hear these first four verses. I'll put it up on the screen. But please turn to Nehemiah in your Bible. We'll be looking at other verses outside of what I can put on the screen. So just to flag that up. Thanks, mate.
1: The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile before the God of heaven.
0: Excellent. Thanks, Julie, and let's just pray again. Father, we thank you so much that you're here. We thank you, Lord, that you're reminding us of your goodness and your grace. And Father, as we begin to launch this new series as a church, Lord, what you did back then speak to us today. Amen. Would you get our attention? We don't want to just hear a good story. We want to be changed. And we want to hear what you would say to us by the Spirit. So please come, even this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Who is this guy, Nehemiah? We're told in that passage that he's uh, over in uh, a town in Mesopotamia, Iraq. See where it says Iraq there in brackets? Below that is the capital of Babylon or Persia of the day. It doesn't show it to you there on the map. I'm trying to just give you an idea that it's far away from Israel about 800k from his homeland. So he's a long, long way from home in Persia, in the capital of Persia of the day, uh, 800 kilometers away. And the question is, who is he? Who is this guy and why is he so upset? You know know what it's like when you meet somebody and you, you see them crying or something, you're thinking, who are you and why are you so upset? And uh, to understand that, we need to go back to get the full story. We need to go back from Nehemiah's day, even a few centuries earlier, to about 580 BC. And there you see the city of J- J- Jerusalem, as it was then in about 580 BC. And the city of Jerusalem was back then was a city like no other city on earth, just to, just to bring that to you. I mean, cities are funny, aren't they? Cities always have their own... Markers, don't they? Their own distinctives, all right? Think of cities around the world today. Think of, go to London. London's got the Houses of Parliament or Buckingham Palace. We we associate things with particular cities. Uh, There's uh, over to to, to, uh, New York, there's Empire State Building, uh, things like that, or you think of uh, uh, Australia, you think of Opera House, Harbour Bridge. Think of France, you think of Eiffel Tower. Uh, Think of Auckland, you think of the Sky Tower. Uh, Think of Wellington, you think of the beehive. Think of Porirua, you think of Te or Frank's Chips, which is the other one that I like in the Porirua. But there are certain things that kind of of ring with a particular area, don't they? And and Jerusalem had uh, something like that too. Every city has something. And Jerusalem had two key things that made it stand out and made it like no other city on earth. The first thing was this. Jerusalem had the presence of God on earth. And I mean that literally, visibly, physically, God himself was in the temple in Jerusalem. In other words, there was a street and a building that if you went into it, uh, you would see the presence of God. You know the story, you've got the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. On top of the Ark, you've got the glory of God himself. And he is physically and literally there. If you were back then and you had your iPhone or your phone, you could take a photo of the presence of God. That's how visible it was. It would be the last photo you took, by the way, uh, because God is holy, and and back then you were not. And also the uh, photo would be overexposed, probably, because of the glory. All right, so, uh, but you, the point is you could physically see the presence of God. That's the first thing. That's how physical he was. So straight away, Jerusalem beats every other city on earth. I mean, yeah, I mean, Paris has the Eiffel Tower and London has the Houses of Parliament, but they don't compare to the presence of God on earth. And that's what Jerusalem had. That's the first thing. The second thing about Jerusalem is this, though, is the calling. All right, the calling. You see, Jerusalem Jerusalem is really the heart of a people with an extraordinary calling and purpose. A calling like no other people on earth. And their calling was really this. It was to be so filled with the presence of God, so reflective of His character in the way they lived, that every other nation on earth would be impacted and astonished by what they saw and be drawn to God, right? That was their original calling. And I mean, for any nation to have a calling like that is astonishing. I mean, imagine, I mean, think of our calling as a country. What are we called to? What's, what are we called to as a people? Do we have a calling even? well, so our calling is to uh, have the best rugby team in the world. You know, that, that could be our calling or pineapple lumps. We could, uh, we could contribute that to the world, all right? I mean, the, the idea of a country or a people having a calling is a strange one. But this people has an extraordinary calling to be so full of God that all nations would come to God through them. And actually, it's a calling that stretches right back to their ancestor Abraham when God promised Abraham that all peoples on earth will be blessed through him. And you'll see this calling spoken about prophetically throughout the Old Testament. So Isaiah, for instance, Isaiah chapter 2, here we go. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in His paths. You see what it's saying? It's saying God's people are called to be different from every other people. In fact, a mountain higher than any other mountain around. A people so full of God and His ways that nations will see and be drawn to their God. What an amazing calling. What a calling. Isaiah 60 also says about the people of God, Isaiah 60 says this, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. In other words, there'd be something about this people, the way they live, the way God's presence is among them, that would change culture round about them and draw nations to God. Amazing, amazing calling. And uh, it's a calling that they were to pursue as a people as well and lay hold of. So it says in Isaiah 60, uh, it goes on to Isaiah 60, 60, verse 3. Here we go. It says, You who call on the Lord... Give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. See, that's the point. The people were to become the praise of the whole earth. a people that everyone would look at and say, wow, what is it about you? You are so full of God, the way you live. Please teach us how to live. Teach us how to live. That was their original calling. It's astonishing. So you've got two things about Jerusalem at this point. Two things. You've got, number one, the presence of God. And number two, you've got this amazing calling to bring, as it were, the world to God through the way they lived and the presence that was among them. What an amazing thing about Jerusalem. But of course, if you know your Bibles... You'll know as you read the Old Testament that something happens to that, don't you? Rather than becoming his holy people and full of his presence, reflecting the splendor of God, rather than that, of course, the people of God begin to drift, and they drift. Rather than impacting the nations around them, they are impacted by the nations around them. And they begin to drift further and further away from God. They drift into compromise and more compromise and into sin and more sin. And over the years, they spiral and spiral further down and further away from God. It's a tragic story, isn't it, if you read it through. And so instead of fulfilling this amazing call to be a blessing to the nations, it's like, it's like they drop the ball. It's like they let it go. And because of that, the other distinctive goes too the presence of God. You say, well, why is that? Well, well, because finally things got so bad, so sinful, that at last God himself says, enough, that's it. That's it. I've sent you my prophets and you've not heard them, you've not, you've not taken on board what they've said, you carry on doing the foulest things, so, so no more I'm going to leave. And the, and the tragedy is he does in about the 580s B.C., the presence of God begins to leave the temple and departs from the people of God. And it's a tragic, tragic thing. And it really is the lowest point in Jewish history and the consequences are terrible because even as God leaves, it's like the hand of protection comes off His people and the Babylonian armies break in, and they trash the place. They totally trash Jerusalem. They pull down the buildings, they burn the temple, Temple, pull that down, the walls come down, they break it up into pieces. Jerusalem is just absolutely trashed. And then, to cap it off, to finish the job, they take the last remaining Jews in Jerusalem and they send them off into exile 800 kilometers into the Babylonian Empire. I mean, it's a terrible thing. So this city of Jerusalem, with this presence of God and this privileged calling to affect the world, is wiped out, is absolutely trashed, and the people are gone. It's a terrible low point in the history of Israel. And the people of God are in exile in a strange place far from home, and they're there for a long, long time. Decades pass in this foreign land until one day about 530 BC, astonishingly, out of the blue, the king of Persia, because Babylon has now become Persia, the king of Persia, Cyrus, decides to let the Jews go home. And he says that, he says, you can go home. And amazingly, it's an amazing thing, that to even be allowed, that. now we know that God is actually working behind the scenes, we know that. So this this announcement comes out, you can return to Jerusalem. And then suddenly it's like like there's a spark. There's a a spark of a lost hope begins to return to the people. Suddenly there's a spark. It's almost like, is it possible? Are we really going back to Jerusalem? Is it it possible to go back? And, And is it possible to walk back into the things that God called us to be? Is it possible to rebuild the place? Are we going to have the presence of God back? Are we going to have the calling back to affect the world? Could it be possible? And it's like a a spark of a lost hope. And so, several thousands of these Jews, most of them had never been born in Israel by this time. They'd been born in exile. Several thousand, they sell up all they've got back in Susa, the capital of Persia. They sell everything, they buy all these donkeys, they pack their bags, and they, and they go through this huge trek back to Israel again. 800 kilometers over bumpy land and on their donkeys. It must have taken them months. And they do this trek back to Jerusalem. And of course, when they finally arrive, the place is in absolute shambles. It's a mess still, totally broken down. But they begin to put a few stones together, get their brooms out, start sweeping the place up. They begin to work on the altar of the temple. They begin to build that, and they start and they stop. And they start to slowly trying to make some headway to get Jerusalem back in order. And then other waves from Persia follow. A second wave from Persia comes afterwards to help and come alongside them, and they, and they work hard. And all the time, back in Persia, back in Susa, the capital, Back where the, the Jews that are left behind there still, who haven't yet returned, they're thinking, how's it going in Jerusalem? How far have they got? I mean, there's no phone back then, they don't know. And they're wondering, how is it rebuilt yet? And you see, this is where we pick up the chapter, the first chapter of, uh, of, of this book. Nehemiah. Because it's here we have a handful of those relatives of Nehemiah who went back to Jerusalem and now they've come back to Susa to report back on what's happened. And you can imagine Nehemiah racing down the the roads of Susa trying to find his relatives to find out what's going on and he grabs them by the scruff of the neck and his first question is going to be well, what's happening? How far have you got? And of course that's when you get to chapter 1, verse verse 3, because they tell him, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. In other words, it's still a shambles. It's still a mess. The walls are down. If the walls are down in an ancient town, then it's open to any enemy that wants to just trample through. In other words, Jerusalem is still a mess. And you can imagine the total disappointment after all of this time. And so we get verse 4 When I heard these things, Nehemiah says, I sat down and wept. All right, Nehemiah is devastated. After all that expectation and hope, knowing the Isaiah prophecies and what they were called to be, he's totally undone. And now as we'll go on to see in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah himself will make the journey back. He will go himself to start to try and rebuild Jerusalem. And that's the story. But folks, this is why this book is so important to us, all right? Because the story of Nehemiah, as we'll go on to show, it's actually a prophetic parable of our own day. You say, well, why, Pete? Well, well, because, because we are the church. And since Jesus established the new covenant, we've become the people of God. I'm not talking replacement theology. Israel has a plan, an amazing destiny too. But I am looking at this passage, and I know this, that, that since Jesus established the new covenant, we've become the people of God. And the two things that made the city of Jerusalem so distinctive back then are ours now. All right. In other words, since the day of Pentecost, the church is called to be the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The presence of God is with us now. The church is the temple. The Holy Spirit has come. And he is with us now. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this our calling is the same. It's to be so full of his presence, so full of his splendor and his character and his love that the Isaiah prophecies will be fulfilled. That nations and peoples will stream to the people of God and to God himself. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. What an astonishing calling. And kings will come to the brightness of our dawn. What a beautiful calling. That's our calling. That's the calling of the church. But, and there's always a but isn't there, (laughs) but as in Nehemiah's time, the church in our day by and large, if we're honest, is still broken down. By and large. After centuries and centuries of empty tradition and political agendas and manoeuvring and corruption and sin and pride and hypocrisy and heresy and abuse and misery and failure as the centuries have rolled on and on and on. The church has fallen by and large into a broken state and some would say that the walls are down and the city isn't yet rebuilt. And that I think is probably true. The fact is, Kings are not coming to us, or at least not in this country. That's the truth of it. That's the reality. The nation isn't coming to the church. This morning, most New Zealanders are either sitting in bed watching Trade Me or reading the papers or on Xbox or getting over the night before. They're not in church. That's the reality. And by and large, most people aren't thinking about the church much much or or if they do, it's when some weird story hits the headlines, you know, Gloria Veil vale or something, and then suddenly people are interested or some American preacher wants to buy another private jet or something and suddenly it hits the headlines and, and the world scoffs. The world scoffs. The reality is most people's view of the church is still little buildings full of little people doing little things hidden away. That's just the reality. The walls... Are down, And can you see, this is why Nehemiah is so important. Because in this man, we see the godly response to that. The response God is looking for in his own people to change that situation. To change the situation. And even in these first verses, you know, there are a number of things that stand out immediately to me that I believe God wants to restore to us to be that agent of change. I mean, the first thing I simply see in these verses is I, I look at this man and I see in him, you know, don't you see in him an incredible yearning, you know, almost a brokenhearted passion, you know, to see the city of God rebuilt. And and I think God wants to restore that again. If you don't have it, he wants to restore it to us. You see, Nehemiah, he knew the prophecies of Isaiah. He knew what God's people were supposed to be, and we need to know that too. You see, it's so easy for some of us just to write the church off and say, well, forget that, it's just God and me, God and me, God and me. But Nehemiah can't forget, you see. He can't forget because he knows we are called to become the highest mountain and that people will stream to God through us so he can't forget and neither should we. And Nehemiah is heartbroken that he doesn't see it. And you know, to be honest with you, there are times when when I almost think, I think I catch that heartbrokenness. To be honest, even now, you know, it grieves me that there are so many great believers out there who don't even go to church because of the way and the state the church has been in. And I get that, I understand that, but I grieve over it too. A year or so ago, I was driving in my car, going for a drive, and and I was remembering back to when I first got saved in the 1970s. Yes, way back then, way back in the 70s, almost the New Testament. And, um, and I got saved back then and I, and I was driving the car remembering all the people I knew, all my friends and the youth leaders and the worship leaders and the pastors. And, and I was just remembering back and seeing their faces in front of me as I was driving and then it suddenly dawned on me and I thought, none of them, none of them are in church. None of them, because of the state of the church, is such a mess. None of them were there anymore. And I remember pulling the car over, and I just bawled and bawled and bawled. And I thought, God, a generation has been lost. It was. So, I thought, God, this is not what you intended. The walls are down. And folks, God is calling us to partner with Him to build a church that's better than that. That that genuinely has a kingdom culture. A church that's genuinely discovering authenticity, not hype, not pretense. It grieves me, you know, even as a pastor that I look out sometimes, I think we can worship God on the outside, but on our hearts we can be broken. Shouldn't be. So we want to see something new emerge, don't we? Something that's authentic and inclusive and honouring and generous and courageous, a, a home for every culture. Every background. A church that's reaching out to those in need around us. A church that influences around about and other other places around, whether it's council or government. So full of his presence that, that people are drawn and nations come. Nehemiah has that yearning and God wants to restore it to us all in a greater measure, I believe that. It says of Jesus that zeal for the house of the Lord consumed him. I believe God is going to bring that back in our day. And so I just want to challenge you this morning about the church. Is it it something you want to run from? (laughs) Is it something you're on guard against? Is it something you don't even think about? It's just somewhere to go on a Sunday? Or is it something you will give yourself to build? Because we're not there yet, folks. Will you give yourself to build until it becomes all that Jesus intended? That was Nehemiah's heart. That was Nehemiah's heart. Second thing I love about Nehemiah, and I'll I'll close on this. Second thing I love about Nehemiah, and I see it here, is simply this. It's the way he turns to God, isn't it? It's so precious. Look at verse 4 again, whole of verse 4. It simply says this. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And if you read further on in the rest of your chapter, you'll see that the prayer he prays is is an incredible prayer. He goes on to say this, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed. And he goes on. Verse 8 Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you. But if you return to me and obey my commands, and even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'll gather you again. Verse 10 They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer. Of this, your servant. Wonderful, wonderful prayer. Such a sense of the greatness of God, and, and such a sense too of of humility and a willingness to to kind of take responsibility and not distance yourself from the mess. But he picks it up, and then crying out to God to restore his people. I mean, this prayer isn't just, God, please bless Auntie Flo, is it? You know, it's not that kind of prayer. Not by the way, we've got anything against Auntie Flo. We love Auntie Flo, don't we? And we'll pray for her and we'll serve her. We love Auntie Flo. There's no one called Flo here. Is there one? No, no. We love Auntie Flo. But there is a great concern here in this prayer for God's great purposes and his church and for his world. If I was to try and translate this prayer, I guess, into into our context, I don't know how I'd do it. Something like, God, please raise up a church in this land. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to shine in Porirua and Wellington and beyond. Help us to reflect your glory. Help us to get out there that others might see you in us. Raise up a church, Lord. Launch us into the community that Portiru and Wellington and the nation will know that you're here and that you love them. God, make us a mountain in this community so that people will see and stream to know you. And really, what we're praying for is the church to be restored. And, And when I say church being restored, I'm not just talking about sorting out the meetings and making them better. No, I'm not. I'm talking about getting into our communities so that people can see God in us. You see, the degree to which we start reaching out into our community as a church is the degree to which the walls are going up again. So we need to pray. God will always be calling us back to prayer and big prayers that match his heart so that we can make space for God to do a big thing. And, of course, the irony is that by the beginning of the next chapter, Nehemiah becomes the answer to his own prayer. Because as he's crying out to God, something shifts in him and he leaves his cushy and comfortable lifestyle and he gets on a donkey and he moves off to help repair the walls of Jerusalem. So, guys, let's gather to pray and allow God to move in on us and speak to us and get us out of our comfort zones, and we'll be exploring that further in the days to come. And even in this gathering, I believe you see there are embryonic ideas that God has put into you to affect your workplace, to reach those in need in the community, and the youth and the nation. And you need to pray because it's only God who will help you turn ideas into action. So we need to pray. And as you get out there showing God's love, so the walls are going up and the mountain of the Lord rises and the church is being restored and the nations will come. Folks, we have the presence of God. Please give us more, Lord. We're not complacent. We know there's more. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit. And we have the call, I believe, to change a nation. Other churches have the same passion too in the, in, the, in the nation. Oh, bless them. We want to be part of that. Please, Lord, don't let us drop the ball. Not in our day. Or let us pick it up again and run. About a month ago, where's um, Lawrence? Where are you? About a month ago, Lawrence, well, about a month or so ago, we had a prayer summit here. What we do there is we had other I guess leaders from New Frontiers churches, they, they flew in and for a couple of days we just gathered together and we prayed. And it was a really lovely time. We pray for the nation, we pray for our churches, we pray for you, we pray. The second morning Lawrence came up to me and tapped me on the shoulder and said I had a dream last night. Now when Lawrence says he has a, a prophetic word you best to listen because he is a prophetic man and I've, I so respect the gifting that he's got. Lawrence said, I had a dream. I had to get up. I had to write it down. I couldn't stop. And so he did. And then he tapped me on the shoulder in the morning. He said, I've got this dream. So I said, I said well, I, I trust you. You better bring it. And uh, so he stood up and he brought this dream to these others in the room. And all I can say is that when he finished, you could have heard a pin drop. It was like God was speaking to us so profoundly as a family of churches. And I remember saying to Lawrence, you need to speak it here. So I'm gonna ask Lawrence to come forward and read through his dream. And I almost dare you to be really open to what God will say to you as Lawrence recounts the dream and actually gives you a picture of a Jerusalem that's restored and a church that's fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah. So this just won't take long, A few minutes, listen to the dream. Thank you, Lawrence.
1: This is what I wrote down after my dream. I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine a world in which ten generations stand on the shoulders of those who go before them it is a world where each generation embraces the revelation given before and then goes further where each generation embraces their elders with honor and takes them with them as they go forward where each generation gladly makes way for the next and urges them onwards. I want you to imagine what a revival like that in Wales would look like if there was not just one week where the courts were closed, when the joy and fear of God descended upon the whole nation, but that was built on for ten generations. Imagine the songs the choirs would sing. I want you to imagine a world where sectarian division, such as in Northern Ireland or the Korean Peninsula, is not just finally too much, so that hurt and hatred starts to heal, but where where that peace and reconciliation is taken from there to other nations. I want you to imagine a world in which every earthquake and natural disaster is an opportunity for communities to rebuild something better than went before, for everyone, not just for personal gain. A world where the vulnerable are no longer used and abused, but embraced and brought into families and communities who love them and bring them healing and restoration. A world where you don't need to steal or fight so you can eat and drink, or live in warmth and shelter, or have satisfying work to provide for your family, or have a community you belong to with Mana and wai, because you are welcomed and equipped with love, generosity and truth. Because if you can imagine such a world, then you can receive the promise I gave to your father Abraham, that the whole world will be blessed through you. You can receive the kingdom of my son came to establish. You can taste and see what the kingdom of God on earth looks like. For I tell you, my purpose is to establish a church that is so full of love, faith, humility, generosity, authenticity, power, joy, peace, worship, love, and reverent awe, that such a world is built. My purpose is to establish my throne and presence among you, so even the streets of your neighborhoods become places of repentance, forgiveness, healing, and worship, where the sick come to be healed where the broken come to be transformed, where the wicked come to repentance, where where righteousness and generosity is celebrated, where joy and peace is a tangible experience and where Jesus is worshiped in awe and wonder. For I tell you, I am building an authentic church which does not just know the truth but has the joy of it in their hearts. I'm building a church which is not just saved, but which serves the unsaved in generosity, faith, and humility. I'm building a church that takes five loaves and two fish and feeds thousands of the hungry. I am building a church that brings healing to all who seek it. I am building a church which looks as irresistibly gorgeous as the bride, my son, will marry. Yes. For my purpose is to bring heaven to earth. My plan is that greater things are done here than Jesus showed you could be done. My plan is that you devote yourselves to receive the promise of Abraham and be my friends who build on what has gone before, and go further again until Jesus comes again. For this is not just for you, but your children's children for generations to
0: come. Thank you, Lord. What a church. (laughs) How long to build that? Just stand, shall we? Can we just stand? I almost feel these days as I'm standing up in front of you that it's like, God, we're, it's almost like we're planting afresh. It's like, it's like it's like we're starting again, again, in a way, as we gather around the vision of such a church. Let's do it, shall we? Let's. Let's build that. That excites me. Together. It's a together thing. We'll learn off one another. I believe that there's an invitation in that dream. And actually in Nehemiah, it's number one, it's to receive more of his presence. More of his spirit. And number two, it's to embrace the call leave your comfort zone and let's rebuild Jerusalem the walls are down let's build them again for some of you that's an easy invitation to receive because you've always loved the church for others of you it's a bit more difficult because of what you've been through and what you've seen I understand that that's why it's important to look at the prophecies again I know that God hasn't given up. And the pro- prophecies are as true today as they ever were. Father, we just stand before you this morning. And we say to you, would you build that church then, please? In Jesus' name. For our part, Lord, we, we grieve for what we've sometimes seen, And we long for the real deal to emerge. And we know we can't do it without you. So we say, God, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us to such a degree that we are changed and we reflect your splendor in our offices and our schools and our community projects and our streets and our families. Father, as a church, would you release dreams among us, ideas that you would initiate, ways to see the walls go up, a church which is not just concerned about their meetings, but Lord, they're a community on the move, stepping out of their comfort zones and taking back land for you. Lord, would you breathe on us these days as we go into this series, would you please grip us, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, where we've been bruised and carry scars from the past, would you help us to give them back to you, and would you lift our gaze again at your great promises, for we say this, your son died for more than this, your son died, you said you would give him the nations, And therefore we say, God, please breathe on us and raise up such a church, Lord. Authentic. With humility. Courageous, generous, inclusive. Oh God, come upon us in these days, every tribe and tongue. Raise up a miracle, we pray, that people cannot simply explain it away as good people management. Oh, deliver us from that. Raise up a church that stands or falls upon your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.